Aren't you thankful for the table of grace? Amen. Amen. It's a lot of grace to let me play the piano, so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that they uh, sang that song, one of my favorite songs that they sing. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Ephesians today. Ephesians chapter number 2. The book of Ephesians chapter number 2. And this is our third installment in our series through this book. Ephesians, Gospel Truths Lead to Gospel Living. Um, The title of the message today, found in verses 1 through 10, is Salvation Before and After. Salvation Before and after. When I titled the sermon, that my, my mind instantly went to all those pictures you see on commercials and the internet. The, the before and the after pictures. So I began to look on the internet for some of those. And I found some funny ones about before COVID and after COVID. I found one that, that had the, the, the Barbie doll. And, and it said uh, it was a skinny Barbie before December 24th. And then it was Carby after December 25th. And so I, I text Eli, our intern, who does most of our graphics work right now. And I said, hey, I need you to help me come up with, with some good before and after portraits that would connect this idea to the audience on Sunday morning. And, and so this is the first one that he sent me. And I thought it was pretty good. Before quarantine and after quarantine. I've been training Tanner in the gym since he got here. And I've done a pretty good job. Here's the next one he showed me. First year out of Bible college and then five years after Bible college. God's done a work in Brother Mike's life. A lot of humility, a lot of polish. Here's the next one. On staff with Pastor Bill. Three weeks on staff with Pastor Tyler. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. It's too bad. (laughs) That's not doctored at all. No Photoshop work went into that whatsoever. That is a prophetic picture. That's what it is. My favorite one he sent me was this one. Before pastoring and after pastoring. He's not even here to defend himself. That's awful. I just want you to know he texted us that picture right there. He texted the staff that picture. And when he texted us that picture, we all got on our own private thread and said, we're going to have a time with this for decades to come. (laughs) All right, you can take the the pictures down. Those are a bit exaggerated, kind of fun. But they all have one thing in common. There's a before, there's an after, and in between the two, there's a transformation. And the point is that for every child of God in here today, if you've been saved, there was a before salvation and there is an after salvation. And in between the two, there was a glorious transformation. How, can, how many can remember the day you got saved? Say amen together. Amen. Today's passage of scripture, better than perhaps any other passage of scripture, shows us the details of this transformation. It shows us what we were before getting saved. Then it shows us what we are after getting saved. Then it shows us the process of transformation between the two. And to be honest, that sums up the audience in the room today. Because you are either in the before stage of salvation, yet to be transformed by Christ. Or you are in the after stage of uh, of salvation, having been transformed by Christ. Here's what I love about the text we're going to be studying this morning. It speaks to both groups. 
To those in here who are before salvation, you aren't saved. This text will show you what your current condition is, but it'll also show you what you can become by the grace of God. It'll show you that you can be saved today and you should be saved today. At the same time, it speaks to those who have been saved by showing us what we used to be and what we are now because of the grace of God. What purpose does this text accomplish in our lives if we're already saved? I'll tell you the purpose. It's going to give us a greater appreciation for the gospel. It's going to give us a a rededicated commitment to live in the gospel. And it's going to give us a more urgent burden to share the gospel. The gospel that's already changed our life. So I want to study the before and after of salvation. And we'll start in verse 1. And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul starts this way. Before salvation, you were dead. Notice the pronoun he used in the second word in the verse. You. He used you. He wants you to know he's talking about you. We all recognize that that our world has evil in it. More today than maybe it ever has. But our fundamental problem is that we assume other people are evil. Not us. So we put locks on our doors and cameras in our doorbells and alarm systems in our homes so that we can keep the bad people away from the good people. And it's not just other people in general that we think are the problem. We tend to think people unlike us are the real problem. And so conservatives think liberals are the problem. Because liberals are destroying family values, undercutting the backbone of of society, trying to remove gluten from all of our food. But liberals think conservatives are the problem because they're prideful and they're stubborn and they're bigoted and they don't recycle. Here's what you need to understand. There's only one category of people in this room. Sinners. Sin is a fatal disease that exists in the heart of every person. And that's why Paul started with the pronoun you. He wanted you to know up front, I'm not talking about the person you're sitting next to. I'm talking about you. And he gets even more straightforward. And he said, you were dead. Dead in what? Dead in your sin. Many people think of sin as an action. Lying, cheating, stealing. I submit to you that dead shows us that sin is a condition. More than an action. Meaning our bad actions are symptoms of our dead condition. Follow this. You don't have the flu because you cough and sneeze and run the fever. You cough and sneeze and run a fever because you have the flu. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's in us. It's a condition. Here's the point. Before salvation, you are spiritually dead. You can try and add religion to your life so you don't feel dead. You can try to modify your behavior so that you don't look dead. But at that point, you are no no more better than the person laying in the casket at the funeral. The funeral home has tried to doctor them up and put makeup on them so they don't appear to be as dead. But everybody that walks by the coffin knows there's no life in that body. And no matter what you try to do to look and feel alive spiritually, listen, friend, if you aren't saved, you're dead. Spiritually dead. You say, well... This sermon started awesome. It gets worse. Look at verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh 
and of the mind. Paul says, you're not just dead before salvation. You were disobedient. Did you see who he said you followed? He said, the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Paul says, before salvation, we are followers of Satan. Now, what does he mean by that? Because that seems harsh. Well, when you consider that the core of Satan's rebellion in the book of Isaiah, when he got kicked out of heaven, was I will, then you begin to understand. Because five times when he got kicked out of heaven, Satan said, I will. He said it this way, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit at the amount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then he got booted from heaven. Satan had an eye problem. And before salvation, we have an eye problem too. By default, we obey our impulses instead of God's will. Meaning when our body says get angry and drink and, and eat and get depressed and have sex and take it easy. We just do it. Before salvation, when, my, when our mind would tell us to just go off on that person or just make your own decisions or do things your own way. We just obeyed because it's about I will, not God's will. Now internally, you might be objecting whenever I, I, I implied that you are a follower of Satan if you're not saved. Because you've never done something so bad that somebody has looked at you and called you Satan. And granted, lost people without Christ are capable of doing good things. I mean, there are military men that are lost, but they'll, they'll lay themselves on a grenade for their comrades. There are parents that are lost, but will love and sacrifice for their children, sure. But when you consider our biggest sin of replacing God's authority in our lives with our own and living for our glory instead of his, our good things don't really seem that good. They're like filthy rags. I, I think of it like this. Imagine that you get a bird's eye view of a terrorist camp. And, and you have inside information that they're plotting uh, to, to bomb a school and kill hundreds of innocent children. That is horrific evil. But you see, as one terrorist uh, takes a break for lunch, another terrorist comes down and sits by him. And one terrorist has a lunch and the other terrorist doesn't. And you notice from your bird's eye view that the one with his lunch takes part of his sandwich and shares it with the one who doesn't have a lunch. Now that's a nice thing to do. That's a good thing to do. But you wouldn't see it as such. Because of the context in which they're being so good is so evil. Plotting to kill children is so bad that anything good they do doesn't seem that good. And our rebellion against God before salvation is so evil, whether you see it that way or not, that it's hard to call our goodness good. So Paul doesn't mix words. Except before salvation, you're dead. You're disobedient so much so that you followed Satan. Number three, except before salvation, you were doomed. Look at the end of verse three. And were by nature the children of wrath. Because of your spiritual deadness, because of your disobedience, Paul says you deserved and you were destined and doomed to experience God's wrath in a real place called hell. Now hell's a terrible place. Educated people in 2020 don't like to talk about hell. But Jesus believed in hell. And Jesus talked about hell often. And you might be thinking at this point, why did the Apostle Paul start so negative? Why didn't he just start with Jesus? And why did he just talk about the good things that we can be if we'll just 
get saved? Why did he have to talk about being dead and disobedient and doomed? Well, two purposes. One for those that are unsaved and one for those that are saved. Here's why Paul starts with talking about our condition so frankly before salvation. For those that are unsaved, in order for you to get saved, you have to clearly understand what you're getting saved from. You have to fully understand the problem before getting the right solution. You have to recognize your loss before you can get saved. Every physician knows that, 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 that if you misdiagnose the disease, you will misprescribe the cure. If you don't understand the problem for sure, you won't embrace the right solution. And so when you understand that being unsaved is more than just not having your act together... When you understand it means you're spiritually dead, it means at your core you're disobedient to God, it means if you were to die today that you would go to hell. When you understand the depth of that, listen friend, you will then understand that you need more than a life coach to help you turn over a new leaf. You need a resurrected Savior who can give you a new life. Amen. That's why I love the word the Apostle Paul used when he said saved. I love that word. I mean, what word is a better equivalent? I didn't need to be improved or updated, or rebooted, or enhanced. I'm not a computer or a piece of software. I'm a sinner. I needed to be forgiven as a seven-year-old boy. I needed to be restored, and redeemed, and resurrected, and and rescued. Hey, I needed to be saved. Well, what about those who already know they're saved? Why did he start so, well, negative? Well, because if you don't grasp the depth of your depravity before salvation, I don't think you'll ever truly cherish grace. See, Spurgeon said, the reason we think too lightly of the Savior is we think too lightly of sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the rope of God's judgment about his neck, will be the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned and to hate the evil which has been forgiven him. You know the reason why people can come into our church and have for years and sing the good old hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and they still get excited about it and they still get a tear in their eye and they still get a lump in their throat? You know why they can do that? Because they haven't gotten over their salvation. They haven't forgotten what they're saved from. Listen, until the gospel seems almost too good to be true, you haven't understood it yet. But it's not just understanding our before salvation life that will help us cherish grace. I have found in my life that, that those of us who are saved and called to living a gospel life with joy and sharing the gospel with others, man, if I don't have the gospel on my mind and a deep appreciation of where I came from, I won't be that excited about living the gospel. And I won't be that excited about sharing the gospel. You know why? We're going to study it. In Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the gospel places some high demands on our life. Listen, friend, the grace of God will save you right where you are. It just won't let you stay there. And so when you get a label slapped on you by God's amazing grace called saved, God expects you to live like it. I mean, it's going to make demands on on, on what you do with your money and your time and your marriage and your children and your work life and your words and so much more. If you don't appreciate what the gospel saved you from, you'll think of the gospel as cumbersome to your life. I'm not coming to Jesus if I have to live like that. I like to think of it like this. I'm going to borrow your imagination a lot today. I get on a, on a commercial plane. I'm about to go on a flight. Before I, I board, right on my way in, they, 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 they tell me I have to put this parachute on me. Now, I sit in economy. I don't sit in first class. I know it surprises you, but I, I sit in economy with the regular people. And I only have four and a half inches 
of leg room anyway. So when, when they give me a parachute, that goes down to about an inch and a half. And a parachute's it's going to be heavy. It's going to be cumbersome. It's going to be inconvenient, especially if I have to sit in between two healthy people. <laughs> but right when I sit down, a stewardess comes to me. And I think she's going to tell me to put on my seatbelt. But instead, she whispers in my ear, I want you to know that at 38,000 feet, this plane's going to lose its engines. You're going to go down. At that point, in a real life world, I'd get off the plane. But we're playing imaginary games here. If I knew that, I would not only put up with the inconvenience of the parachute, I would consider it the most valuable thing in my possession. And you know what else I'd do? I'd be standing up telling everybody else to get their parachute on. And until you wrestle with the extent of the real sin problem you had before salvation... Until you grasp on a regular basis what you've been saved from, you'll never love the gospel, you'll never cherish the gospel, you'll never live the gospel, and you won't feel like the gospel's worth sharing. That's why it's important for us to understand the before salvation life. You were dead, you were disobedient, you were doomed. Now that's a lot of bad news. And it could have stopped there and God would have been just and right in stopping there. But verse 4 contains the largest conjunction ever uttered. What John Stock calls the greatest two syllables ever spoken in the English language. Verse 4 says, but God. Now I want that to sink in. I want you to feel the force of that for a moment. You were dead, but God. You were disobedient, but God. You were doomed for hell, but God. You were helpless, but because of God, you are not hopeless. Now how's that possible? The rest of the verse says it's because of God's mercy. He's rich in mercy, and it's because of his love. Now, don't let's let this be Christianese to you. I know God loves me. I know he's merciful. I want you to consider this. The reason that God's love and mercy is so amazing is because he wasn't loving and showing mercy to his friends. Towards those that were alive in him. Towards those that were obedient to him. In the context of this, he's showing mercy and love to those that weren't saved. To those that were enemies of the cross. To those that were disobedient to him. To those that were doomed for a devil's hell. To those that were dead to him. He is showing love and mercy to his enemies. That's what makes his love and, and mercy so amazing. I heard a story from, from a, a preacher that, that used to preach over 50 years ago. His, his name's Robert Coleman. Tell the story of a 10-year-old girl in, in his church. I'm sorry, an 8-year-old girl in his church. She had this, this rare um, blood disease that, that was going to be fatal if she couldn't find the, the right blood type uh, with, with the right resistant antibodies in it in order to, to, to rid her of this blood disease and help her uh, get through it and recover from it. Well, they were blessed in one sense because her older brother, who was 10 years old at this time, actually just recovered from the same blood disease a year earlier. They took his, his blood, he had the same blood type, and he had the resistant antibodies that she would need. And so they set up a blood transfusion. And the doc asked the little boy, are you willing to, to give your blood so that your sister can live? And the little boy said, yeah, I would, I would love to do that. And so they walk into the hospital, the preacher says. The boy sits on the bed. The nurse gets him hooked up to an IV. The doctor comes in there and begins to administer this blood transfusion. And the moment that, that, that he begins to, the little boy begins to see the blood enter into the IV, 
It says his countenance changed. Right before he sat down in the hospital bed, he was smiling. He gave his, he gave his sister a hug and a kiss. It, it was a very, very awesome moment. But all of a sudden he got pale and he's nervous and he's sad. And the doctor said, what's going on? Are you okay? And he said, how long is it going to take, doc? Oh, just a few minutes. He said, no, how long is it going to take for you to take all my blood out of my body? And how long does it take for me to die? And in that moment, that 10-year-old boy genuinely thought he was giving his entire life, all his blood so his sister could live. And he was willing to. Now that's a rare kind of love. Even between siblings and even between family. But Paul is saying that God's mercy and God's love's on another level because he was willing to give his son's blood, his son's life, not for his friends, not for his siblings, not for his family, but for his enemies. But God committeth his love toward us. And while you, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Martin Luther said what I feel like sometimes. If I was God and the world treated me as it has him, I would have kicked the vile, wretched thing to pieces. I say all that to help us understand that if it weren't for God who's rich in mercy and abounding in love, we would not have an after salvation to talk about. But because of it, Paul writes... And says, after salvation, you were made alive in Christ. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us or, or made us alive or resurrected us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, you're going to notice that all of that was in the past tense. Because Paul's referring to what Jesus already did on the cross. Please listen to this. He's not talking about some gradual religious process of coming alive. When you slowly become a good person and you slowly get your act together, at least enough for God to save you. He's talking about something that Jesus made possible for you all at once in the past. Jesus was treated by God like he was a follower of Satan. He was treated by God like he was a son of disobedience. He was treated by God like he was doomed for hell. Then he lived the life we were supposed to live and he died the death we were supposed to die. He didn't merely die for us, friend. Listen, he died instead of us, giving us an opportunity to be made alive in him. Paul continues in verse 6. And hath raised us up together. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. He said, after salvation, you were raised up with Christ. You see, in God's eyes, I'm already seated with Jesus at the place of honor around God's throne. It's a done deal at the point of my salvation. I want you to see this with your mind's eye. Maybe you've, you've been to a, a, a sporting event, a, a football uh, stadium or, or, or baseball stadium and, and, and you, 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 you are sitting with the common people in the bleachers and you look up and you see the box seats up there. And you see that attached to box seats are these nice cushy sweets, unlimited snacks and unlimited drinks and big screens and people to wait on you and comfortable couches. And if you're anything like me, you think something like this. How did they get up there? They must know somebody special. Here's the great thing about getting saved. You get a box seat. When you come to know God, you know just the right person to get the best seat in the house. In fact, Paul made the point that you couldn't be in a higher place in heaven. He's literally put you in Jesus' seat for all eternity. 
And you don't get that seat because you give a million dollars. You don't get that seat because you pray for four hours a day. You don't get that seat because a family member prayed you there. You don't get that seat because you got baptized. You don't get that seat because you take communion. You don't get that seat because you went out in the community, you joined a board and did some benevolent deed. Paul teaches us that the way you're made alive in Christ, the way you're raised up to be seated with Christ is twofold. God's grace and your faith. You don't pay for a ticket there. Look at verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Here's the cause of your salvation. Here's the basis of it. God's grace. And God's grace is a gift. You did nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to lose it. Or it wouldn't be called grace. His gift was his own son, Jesus, dying on the cross. Listen, friend, that's an expensive gift. That's a lot of grace. God has done his part for you to get saved. The means of your salvation, then, is your faith. You're saved because of God's grace, but you're saved through your faith. Now, now, now let me help you understand what that means. Faith is not simply a religious feeling. Because we can come into church and we can get in the fields, right? Choir sings a song, clean. We sing Amazing Grace, or we sing Wonderful, Merciful Savior, whatever we sing, and it's kind of a religious feeling. That's not faith. That's being a human being. It's not an intellectual acknowledgement of His existence. It's not because your grandma told you that God exists. It's not because when you see a rainbow, you know what that means. It means that God promises to never flood the world again. It doesn't mean that, that you believe the Bible is true. Faith is more than that. It, it's not just becoming more Christian. It's not saying I'm going to be a better spouse, a better child, a better, a better worker, a better citizen, a better person. I'm going to go to church more. That's not faith. Faith is not even rock solid confidence in Jesus with no doubts. Faith doesn't mean you have to understand everything about God. It doesn't mean you have to know where all the books of the Bible are in the Bible. That's not faith. I'm going to give you faith in a sentence based on an Old Testament picture where really all, all the New Testament truths are pictured best in the Old Testament. Here's faith. It's the hand that lays hold on Jesus. Where do I base that on? I base that on the Old Testament practice of what they had to do to confess their sins. Watch this. In in order to be forgiven of their sins, they would have to regularly take a lamb without spot and without blemish to the temple. When they laid that lamb upon the altar, they would then lay their hand on the lamb's head. When they laid their hand on the lamb's head, they would confess their sins out loud. And as they confessed their sins out loud, the priest would cut the lamb's throat and the blood of the lamb would be spilt on the altar. By placing their hand on the lamb, they were transferring their sins onto that lamb. And that lamb was taking the punishment, shedding his blood for them. That's what faith looked like in the Old Testament. When you become a Christian in the New Testament, All that happens is you reach out to the Lamb of God with the hand of your heart. And by faith you say, I'm a sinner. And you confess your sin to God, not every one of them, but you just acknowledge, I'm a sinner. But I believe by faith that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, died for my sin and paid for my sin. And I'm laying hold of the truth that I am trusting my sin to be transferred onto the Lamb called Jesus. That's faith. It's an inward belief that produces an outward commitment. You might say, man, I don't know if I'm there yet. I I, I don't know 
if I understand enough. I don't know if my faith is strong enough. I don't know if I grasp it enough. That's not the right way to look at it. Then it's not faith. I want you to imagine there are two men standing on the tarmac of a runway. Are you thinking with me? One is a tribes person and one is an aeronautical engineer. The tribes person doesn't even own an electronic device, never has. Doesn't even know how to work an iPhone. Can you believe that? A tribes person doesn't understand an airplane, never been in an airplane, never seen an airplane. The aeronautical engineer, on the other hand, helped build the plane, helped design the plane, knows the ins and outs of the plane. But I want you to imagine it comes time for both of them to get on the plane, and the only one that gets on the plane is the tribes person. The one who has no experience with the plane and no understanding of the plane. Leaving the guy that built the plane unwilling to get in the plane. The plane takes off. Common sense question. Which one is going to get to their destination? The one that got in the plane. The one that got in the plane despite not understanding everything there is to know about the plane. The one that doesn't get to their destination is the one that might have understood it all but wasn't willing to put their action or their belief or their commitment into what they understood. So faith, listen friend, is not the absence of doubt. Faith is choosing to rest in what Jesus did for you on the cross as being enough to save you from your sins even though you don't understand that fully. And when that happens, good news, when that happens, when you do that, here's what happens, you get saved instantaneously you get saved. Right away, your sins are forgiven forever. Your home is secured in heaven for all of eternity. It doesn't happen gradually. Your salvation happens the moment you get in the airplane. But then, something starts happening that isn't so instantaneous. It's just as powerful, but it's gradual. Because when you were made alive in Christ, when you were raised up with Christ, Verse 10 says you start changing with the help of Christ. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. When you are united to Christ in salvation, watch this, you are infused with his life in you. You are infused at that point with a desire and a capability of doing that which is good. You are not saved because you're good. You are saved that you may be able to do that which is good. Think about this. If you really get saved, there's no way to be hit with that kind of force, that kind of power, that kind of grace, mercy, and love and not be affected by it. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens gradually. It's called sanctification. But over time, you become God's workmanship And he goes to work on you and you start talking and thinking and behaving in ways that just you were incapable of doing before you were saved. Can I borrow your imagination one more time? Imagine a church started at 1045 today. And Brother Mike got up here and led the congregation in worship. The choir sang their song. Brother Mike sang a few more songs. Trio sang their song. And when it was time for me to come preach... I was nowhere to be found. And so Brother Mike looks around. He does what he should do. He just starts making up stuff. And he acts like it was all on purpose. And he starts singing Amazing Grace because everybody knows that one. I'm still not here, so he sings another song. 
He has another special. And right when that special ends, I walk into the pulpit. I finally arrive. About at, mm, 11.30ish. 11.35ish. And the first thing I say when I get to the pulpit is, hey, just want you to know I'm late. Because when I left my house at 1440 South Grant and I started driving south on Clay, I hit an 18-wheeler head-on going 70 miles an hour. Now, now, you would scream out liar because semis don't drive down South Clay at 70 miles an hour, one thing. But we're playing imaginary games, so it doesn't matter. But you would really say that's impossible because if I were hit by that kind of force, I wouldn't be standing in a pulpit. I, you first responders know I'd be messed up. Probably not alive. And when you're hit with the kind of force that you're hit with at the moment of getting saved, you don't look the same. Not, 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 not necessarily instantly. But over time, as you become God's workmanship, he begins to change you, friend. And there is proof of it. You saw some people singing in the choir today, and they're all polished, and they're nice, and they look good, and they sound good. But you don't know what they were before salvation. Yeah, I know what a lot of them were before salvation. And they might look good and sing good now, but it wasn't that way. And when they got saved, and God began to work on them, it's like they got hit by an 18-wheeler. I mean, they were that messed up by God's grace. God's grace rocked their world and is still changing them to look more and more like the Son of God. And that is the beauty of God's grace after salvation. It's not like God saves you and says, Ooh, I'm done with that one, let's go to the next. Uh-uh. You become his child, an adopted child of his. At that moment, at that moment, you go into his, his shop and you become a masterpiece that he goes to work on. So there are two audiences in here. It's very simple. The first audience is those that are saved. Okay? If you're saved, then this text was written and I preached it so that you could respond in this way. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. I preached it and Paul wrote it in such a way to remind you of what you were before salvation. To remind you what you have become after salvation. So that you could at some point today humble yourself and worship the God that saved your soul. If you think this message was just for lost people, you missed it. You missed it. If, you, if I preach that to you, saved person, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't even hit you, it doesn't seem too good to be true, you don't understand the gospel yet. You don't cherish grace. So if you're saved and you have a testimony of salvation, this text should drive you to live a gospel-centered life and share the gospel with others because you got the parachute. There's another group in here, and those that, it's those that are unsaved. I have no idea. I have no idea who's in this group. I know in a group this size, I've been at this long enough to understand there's somebody in this group, in this room. Somebody that can't go back to a time when they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't go back to a time when they got in the airplane. They, 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 they tried to modify their behavior. They tried to turn over a new leaf. They just never got in a new life. That's who I'm talking to right now. For you, this message has been uncomfortable. This message has stung a little bit. This message in some ways is, is shocking. To be called dead, 
to be called disobedient, to be called doomed to hell whenever your grandma said you weren't. Whenever they said you did this back so and so and and so you're good now. Whenever you got your act together four or five years ago and you've been on the right track since. And now to hear that if, if, you, if, you, haven't, if you can't go back to a place where you, where, you, where you place your faith in Christ, you're not saying, yeah, but I got this to prove it and this to prove it and this to prove it. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now you're boasting. And so if you're not saved, this text is written, I preached it with this heart. I want you to get saved today. God wants you to get saved today. How do you do that? Well, we're going to have an invitation in just a moment. Everybody will stand. Christians will come that, that, that feel like they want to worship the Lord and thank Him on their knees for saving their soul. And when they come, I'm going to stand right here and you come to me. My microphone will be off. I won't call your name. I won't embarrass you. I won't make you talk in front of anybody. I'll just pair you with an altar worker. And they'll take you to a room. Um, that, 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 that doesn't make you feel like you're forced or coerced into anything. Doesn't put you on the spot. Listen closely, please. And at that moment, they will show you from the Bible how you can get saved. And in today's society, now back, back in the day, this used to happen every Sunday. But people care a lot more what other people think today. And so people are private today. Don't be distracted. People are private today. And so it's really hard in this kind of service. It's not the culture of most churches anymore. You don't get out of your seat and, and come to an altar because it's embarrassing. But Jesus said, if you don't deny him before men, he won't deny you. And part of the salvation process is saying, I am publicly unashamed. I am saying I'm lost and I want to get saved. And there's no amount of embarrassment that is worth going to hell. And you are surrounded by people in this church that will love you and clap for you and pray for you and get behind you the moment you decide, I want Jesus. Yeah. Put a picture up there, Miss Tammy. I've been so overwhelmed with this text all week long that when I took me and my son went on a walk, Earlier this week, one evening. And we, we went over here on South Clay. And, and we didn't get hit by a semi, thank goodness. And I, I went down a, an alleyway. And that alleyway was the alley I grew up playing on. I want to show my son. You know, I, I, I started pointing out all kinds of things to him. And I went right in front of this house. And it's the same exact fence, garage, shed, everything. That was the house as a seven-year-old boy, I got saved in. I, I, can, I can show you, it's not in the picture, but I can show you the window of my parents' bed, bedroom. Where I walked in at the foot of my dad's bed, he led me to Christ. You know why I put that up there? Not to brag, but to show you I got a place I can go to. It didn't happen gradually. It wasn't a slow process of becoming better. It wasn't joining a church or getting baptized. I placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that day. And instantaneously, he began to work on me and his grace changed me. And now I'm destined for eternity in heaven and I don't doubt it. And I wanted to show my son. My son, by the way, got saved as a seven-year-old boy too. In the state of Missouri, when I was preaching revival, I I wanted to show my son, son, that's where God changed me. And I probably will take him back there often. Just to keep reminding him and reminding myself. That I was a pretty good kid. I was a preacher's kid. Young kid. Didn't, didn't get much uh, evil or wicked things. But it took as much of the grace of God to save a seven-year-old preacher's kid as it did a drunk off the street. And God changed my life. And I wanted to change your life if you're not saved today. Would you stand?
to your feet. Every head bowed.